Hello, you're listening to Thoughts and Feels, the podcast that brings academic scholarship to bear on popular culture and everyday experience. In each episode, I sit down with a scholar to talk about what interests them in order to discover its connections to the world around us. I'm your host, Tim Weatherspoon. Social scientists, for various purposes, are interested in measuring the collective opinions of a society involving a range of issues, often in order to make policy recommendations or to predict the outcomes of elections and referendums. The most prominent technique for discovering the public opinion is the sample survey, where a subset of individuals are selected to give their personal opinions which are then aggregated into a public collective. My guest this episode is Dr. Esra Barak Ho, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at Lingnan University in Hong Kong. Esra works in the fields of income inequality, distributive justice, executive compensation, and attitudes. Her current work examines attitudes toward executive compensation in the U.S., Hong Kong, and mainland China. She primarily uses population-based survey experiments in her research. In this episode, she tells us about some of the challenges in using sample surveys to collect public opinion and some of the clever ways social scientists overcome those challenges. Esra, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me here. So today we're going to talk about ways to measure public opinion. The most prominent technique for measuring public opinion is definitely the sample survey, where we select some subset of individuals and we select them to give their own personal opinions, and then we try and aggregate into some sort of collective public opinion. Is that right? Mm -hmm, That's right. That's what we try to do. (laughs) All right. So I feel like this can be undermined in a large number of ways. The degree to which that sample actually represents the public collective can be a big question. So one obvious example that you see all the time is a news program will invite viewers to phone or text in their opinions about some issue in the news that day. But of course, those people are already viewers of that news program, Mm -hmm. and they have some editorial preferences that are aligned with that news program because they're watching that program. It's like asking a bunch of people in a restaurant if they like that restaurant. Well, they like it at least enough to go there already. Yeah. So can you give me some other examples of this? Absolutely. So, yeah, like you said, since we can't usually go out and interview every member of a target population, we have to be careful about, you know, drawing that sample from that population we're looking to generalize to. Mm-hmm. And uh, letting people volunteer, like you said, is a big danger. So there are ways to reduce some of that bias, actually, of the opt-in samples. Uh, if you have especially a great deal of other information on these respondents, um, like income, party ID, education, age, sex, race, uh, but that's usually not the case. So I can talk about the usual case, All right. I suppose. Um, so there's the a big problem of when researchers do draw a high-quality probability sample, but unfortunately the sample is drawn from an incomplete sampling frame. So what happens is you're going to then systematically miss some people. And the key word there is systematically, right? There's a famous example of this. Um, in 1936, there was a magazine called the Literary Digest magazine, and it was really a well-respected magazine at the time. 
And after this incident that I'm going to tell you, they closed down pretty soon after. Um, so they had been successfully predicting some of these presidential elections in the U.S. All right. And for the 1936 election, their prediction was that Alf Landon would easily win over Roosevelt. Easily. Yeah, and, I've never heard of Alf Landon, so I think they got yeah, that one wrong. Yeah, Alf Landon, right. And so, yeah, the exact opposite happened, which, you know, and their numbers were really off, not just a little bit. So what what makes this mistake more dramatic is that they had an initial sample of 10 million. Oh, my that's goodness. That's huge. Yes. Yeah, that's huge. So, so a typical poll that I see reported in the news samples maybe a thousand households? Mm -hmm, that's right. And that is actually enough. If you have a probability sample, a high quality probability sample, you can do well with that amount. So you don't need 10 million, but they had reached out to 10 million. And, you know, because of so what comes later, you know, this disaster happens. We have learned a lot of important lessons from this, and it's been very informative in a lot of ways for the advancement of survey research. So it turns out that there were two major problems. One is the draw to draw their sample. They primarily used telephone directories and automobile registrations. And that sounds like it covers a lot of ground. Right. But actually, you know, systematically excludes lower income voters, particularly in the mm -hmm. 1930s compared mm -hmm. to, to more recent days. Absolutely. Then it was a luxury to have a telephone luxury to have an automobile so you know you are excluding systematically and the other thing that happened is of that 10 million only 2.3 million returned the surveys okay 2.3 million is a lot of people still but if there's a non-response bias then you know then you also have inaccurate responses because the, those who do respond, this goes back to your question from the beginning, those who do respond are a little bit different from those who don't respond. And that makes all the difference. Right. It must be very hard. Even actually today when we're recording this, the Brexit referendum happened today. Mm -hmm. And right. even already I've seen like, oh, well, if you had mandatory voting in UK, probably they would vote remain. Right. Mm -hmm. People are always speculating about the opinion of the non-response is something I've always noticed in editorial pages. Right. Of course, we know nothing about the non-response except that they didn't respond. Yes, that's right. And, you know, there were a couple of um, market research companies that were trying to predict, actually, and they were off, too, just yesterday. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I saw some YouGov and Ipsos Mori predictions, and the result was so close that they were off just a little bit on the opposite side. Yeah, I think most of the polls that I read said anything could happen, mm -hmm. which I was surprised to see that reported in that way, because often mm -hmm. the poll is reported as if it is carved in stone prediction <sighs> of the future. We wish. So what are some of the ways in which non-responders are different is a question I, I'm curious about. I know I tutor a course and they talk about uh, sample surveys and they give an example, surveyors are sent to houses to measure family size. Mm -hmm. And they are going back over a period of three months to the same households. And they found over the period of three months that the family size decreases over three months. And of course, there's not a population dynamic going on there. Uh, what's going on there is that the first time they went to the households, 
they had a larger non-response. But in the second and third months, they had more time to plan to increase the response rate of the survey. And people with children were more likely to be at home on the first month. Mm -hmm. So this is a sort of demographic survey. I wonder what we can say about public opinion and non-response. Right. Um, yeah, demographics do affect, actually, the survey results as well, because people's lived experiences might have effects on their opinions as well. But yeah, for one thing, I know, similarly to what you just said, I know one survey that with a very high response rate, actually, 85% response rate, that's considered very high. Right. Only 5% of the people who did respond said that they had a same-sex relationship. Okay. So based on that, you might say, okay, 5% of people who have a same-sex relationship. But then they went back and they worked really, really hard to get those people back, the, the ones who did not respond. And the way you can do that is, you know, going with different modes of surveys, mail in, telephone in, go to their door, you know, and then over the internet, whatever. So they increase the response rate. And what they find is that 17% of those who did not initially respond had a same-sex partner. Oh, wow. Yeah. So now you have a very different view of what you're trying to study here, right? I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. What matters most, like you said, is how those who did and who didn't respond are different from one another and whether that matters for the opinion item that you're trying to study. Yeah, so this could be particularly important when the opinion that you're trying to study is controversial. Mm -hmm. well, if you're going to ask about gay marriage, you want to have the people who have same-sex relationships, especially it's, you know, it's going to increase probably the rate of agreement. Right. The, the rate of support, yeah. We've been talking so far about sort of things that can go wrong even when a sample survey is well-designed and well-implemented. Well, at least when it attempts to be well-designed and well-implemented. And I think that social statistics has largely overcome or is aware of a lot of these issues. But I also think that there's a hidden assumption here that the public consists of individuals that have stable, well-formed opinions who express them honestly to the survey interviewer. So I wanted to ask you, does the public consist of individuals with stable, well-formed opinions? Mm -hmm. And uh, how do we know if that is true or not? Okay, yeah, that's, that's a really big, important question. And this is actually a really big debate itself in attitude research. Now, some researchers have argued that when people are asked about how they feel about something, like abortion, let's say, right? Right. They have a mental filing cabinet, and they go to that cabinet and take out the file that says abortion on it mm -hmm. and read you what's on the file. Now, if you come back two months later, they go back to the cabinet, take out the file, read what's on the file. And we call that the file drawer model of survey response. And of course, it assumes that the attitudes are pre-existing before the question is asked. Right. And it also says that it's going to be relatively stable, right? Right. But then there's a group of researchers who are very skeptical of this. Right. I find myself sympathetic to them immediately. Yeah. So um, Philip Converse wrote a piece, and we can put this in the sources for the listeners. Great. He wrote a piece in 1964. It was entitled The Nature of Belief Systems in Mass Publics, and in which he argued that the vast majority of people, especially those with lower education levels, don't have 
coherent belief systems and these beliefs and opinions that arise from an ideological conceptual base. Okay. So that's how it all started. And worst is that some researchers have found that respondents aren't really terribly well informed and they will offer their opinion if you ask them on fictitious issues, which is really funny. I'll give you an example of that. Yes, yes, please. <laughs> so in 19... 86, John Zeller, he asked a representative sample of Americans what position George Bush held. That's H.W. And at that point, Bush had been vice president for a few years. Right. And 24% of Americans could not give the right answer. So that talks about the less informed part of the argument, right? Right. And then in the 1990s, the General Social Survey included Wisian Americans, this is a fictitious ethnic group, Okay. and asked respondents to rate them favorably or unfavorably. What do you think about the Wisian Americans? Oh my goodness. <laughs> and uh, 39% of respondents offered the rating, and the ratings were on average negative. So, you know, you're looking at this and you think, are we really measuring something here? What are we measuring and is it meaningful? So nowadays, many researchers actually fall somewhere between the file drawer model and the what we call the non-attitudes, you might say, model. Uh, I'll give the example of one model of survey response, if you want, which I think is a good explanation of what we're really observing here. And this is kind of what I currently believe in. And so it's, it's called the belief sampling model, and it's developed by Tourangeau, who's um, Professor Emeritus at the University of Michigan Survey Research Center, and his colleagues. So I'm going to try to give my explanation of one part of the model, but there's more to it, of course. Um, of course. So imagine that you're a respondent to a survey, and you can think of your mind like a candy jar with colorful candy inside, except it's full of beliefs and attitudes rather than candy. Okay. So every time you're asked a question, you pick a handful of these attitudes and beliefs, and you count reds, blues, and yellows, and greens, whatever comes up in your handful. And give me the average response based on the handful. Okay. And whichever belief or consideration, as John Zeller has said, consideration, is more to the surface on that day, then there's a more likelihood of getting that picked. So every time, the exact composition of this handful will change. But there's an underlying distribution which has a central tendency, and it has a variance because it's all coming from the same jar. And so each respondent has their own unique jar, let's say. And so attitudes aren't totally meaningless and coming from out of the blue, but they're coming from somewhere and they do have variation because of this. All right. So there's a sort of collection of opinions or beliefs within the individual. Right. And then there's an assumption that if we survey those collections amongst enough individuals, then the sort of variance and noise within the individuals may cancel out some. And in the end, we still measure something of meaning. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes. And, you know, this paired with some newer research also showing that attitudes do change over time. Yes, as a public, but they are changing in predictable ways. For example, in response to new information coming from what the respondents call a credible source, like a news anchor, for example. All right. Um, and, you know, if this is challenging their already held assumptions, then they're likely to change. So it's a little bit more in the predictable sense. It's not really erratic. And maybe, you know, for the Wisian Americans, you know, why would that be a negative rating? Well, may maybe, you know, the foreign sounding name triggers a certain set of considerations, I'm going to say. Yeah. 
So, and then if you say, you know, okay, I have never heard of this. This sounds foreign. And if you're certain you are holding a certain value set, that might translate to a negative rating for the Louisiana American ethnic group, which doesn't exist. I would think that there's definite tendency of response like, well, I don't know about that. It can't be good. I, this might be. It's just speculation. But maybe that's what happened because I have no other explanation. Yeah. So in the belief sampling model, you still have some assumption, though, that that candy jar is mixed you know, from a variety of sources, but mm -hmm. still exist within the individual in a, mm -hmm. a fairly stable way. Mm -hmm. So of those things that can mix up that jar, can the survey interviewer be part of that things that mix up that jar? Absolutely. Yes. And we, I mean, hopefully if an honest researcher will usually try to do their best to not bias their results, but Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, first there's question wording, of course, as we all know. So a New York Times poll in 2010 showed a 17-point difference between strong support for gay men and lesbians serving in the military, that's 51%, and for homosexuals serving in the military, 34% support. So the only difference there is gay men and lesbians versus homosexuals. That's question wording effect. Wow. And you, yeah, you have the same thing when you look at assistance to the poor versus welfare, which means, you know, essentially the same thing, but welfare triggers a different set of considerations, including race. Right. So that makes it much less supported. And, you know, these are, you know, because of the considerations that are being triggered, but then there's also question order, which is very fun actually to look at as an outsider point of view, but very scary as a researcher. All right. Well, before we get into that, I have to ask more about the question wording. You have this example that support for gay men and lesbians is higher than support for homosexuals. Mm -hmm. From a journalistic standpoint, these terms all seem kind of neutral to me, but they seem to trigger a different set of responses. Right. So how is a surveyor supposed to know which of these responses is more valuable? Do I believe the 51% more than the 34? How might I make a decision? Right. I think that's a really great question. I'm going to say both are valuable because each of the, the words actually has its own maybe history, its own connotation. And that's the underlying reason for which there is support or there is less support. And that's really what we want to know. The underlying reason for which this is happening, the supporter uh, opposition is happening. So if you can go deeper down, so it's not, of course, we're not just trying to find out. So the answer to this question is 51%. We want to know why people think the way they think as well, right? Sure. So that actually gives us perhaps a little bit of a window, an opening where we can see where that difference might be between supporters and opposition. Okay. Maybe it's a good entry point to ask the question, you know, why is this the case? For example, for the assistance to the poor item, some research has looked at this and found that welfare is also triggering the consideration of race. And that's through which, through race, it becomes less supported. So it's important I see. to have both. To have both is important, perhaps, yeah. This is so scary to me because it's one thing for a social scientist to be aware of both results and then to see how, okay, what is causing these opinions? Mm -hmm. But as a media consumer, 
I just see the answer is 51% on one channel. Mm -hmm. And on a different channel, I see the answer is 34% and my hands are in the air. How do I consume this media? Yeah, absolutely. So you also mentioned something about the ordering of questions. So yeah, in a normal conversation, well, people take into account what's already been said and you just progress in that conversation. The same is true for surveys. It's like a conversation. So then, which means... If you have a question that precedes a question, it might have its effect. And there are some questions which simply move everybody in the same direction, regardless of how they answered the first set of questions. We call that a directional effect. Okay. For example, asking questions related to Russia, you know, in the past led to support for defense spending, for example. Okay. And, you know, there are also correlational effects. So with these, you're subconsciously taking into account the previous question as a benchmark, either to contrast or to perhaps assimilate. And, okay, let's say there are two questions. All right. And I'm going to tell you the percent supporting free access for communist reporters into the U.S. That's the only percentage that we care about, right? Okay. So the two questions are going to be ordered differently. The first question is, should the United States let communist newspaper reporters come in here? The second question is, should a communist country like Russia let American newspaper reporters come in? Okay. And we're going to reverse the order of this and see what happens to the number who says, okay, let the communist reporters in. So if you ask the question, should the United States let them in first, you get 55% support for communist reporters to come into the U.S., Right. But if you ask the question, should a communist country like Russia let American newspaper reporters in first, then large numbers of people say, this is an American survey, so they say, yes, of course they should let us in. Right. And once they have said that, you ask, okay, so should the U.S. let them in? Because this is the reciprocal. And then they are, you know, saying, oh, okay, well, I just said they should let us in. So, well, we should let them in. 75% support versus 55%. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of the largest differences in question order effects recorded, actually. And it comes from the sort of norm of even-handedness that respondents want to look fair, either be fair or look fair. Right. But if you don't highlight that fairness issue to them in the survey, then they're more isolationist. No, don't let them in. Yeah, if you ask the question first, then you get 55%. Yeah, that's powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And scary, like you said. Because a surveyor, they have to order the questions one way or the other. And they may not even be aware that an early item will will trigger a change in a later item. Right. And that's why we, we sometimes randomize the order of questions where it makes sense. Okay. Yeah, we, we tend to do that if we think there will be an effect. Maybe a randomized block of questions or individual questions like these ones. That makes sense. What we just highlighted is that sometimes a survey participant, I don't know what the right word is, maybe they mean to be said to be unreliable, Mm -hmm. but I wonder if there's something here about honesty. Mm -hmm. Like, is that 55% somehow more honest than the 75%? Because they want to seem fair? Yeah, so now we're getting into the realm of social desirability bias, I think, and This is a great question because it's one of my favorite topics. Yeah, there's a lot of concern about honesty, and these mostly come from responses to sensitive questions. What we call sensitive questions are those that trigger social desirability 
invade people's privacy or that put the respondent at risk. Like, have you cheated on your taxes? You know, it, it's if there is a third party disclosure there, there's a big risk. So a question on cocaine usage will lead to underreporting, obviously. And if you ask about have you voted in the past election, you'll get overreporting. And if people want to look fair, you know, that's socially desirable. You'll get maybe over support. Researchers have compared uh, abortion clinic data with big national survey on abortion and found that only half of the abortions were reported in the survey, for example. So that's a big problem. Yeah, and there are other problems also that affect the accuracy of responses. This is not about honesty, but what we call satisficing. Uh, John Krosnick and his colleagues have called this satisficing. It means that the respondent will give the easiest and quickest response that works, not the optimal or best response, but that's not about honesty. Okay. Yeah, honesty and, you know, sensitive questions are very interesting. So there may not be an intentional deception, but the motivation for that response is more about protecting oneself. Right. If you have such a case, like you mentioned the abortion case, you can ask people if they've had an experience of an abortion, mm -hmm. and then you can count up the number of abortions that abortion clinics have administered, and you can measure some difference there. So what are some other techniques that you might try and employ to get accurate results for sensitive issues? When dealing with sensitive issues, you have to get creative, as creative as you can. So one thing that people have tried is softening the language, and that sounds like it might work, but it doesn't. For example, you could say, well, we know that a lot of people don't vote because they just aren't registered or sick or, you know, just didn't have the time. How about you? You know, did you vote in the elections? It's totally okay if you didn't. But that doesn't help. You have to get even more creative than this. One thing you can do is to circumvent the direct question. So instead of asking whether the respondent attended church yesterday, which can lead to overreporting, right? you can ask about what did you do yesterday, hour by hour. My personal favorites are the experimental designs because they're, I think they're the most creative and they can be built into surveys. And there are a few different types that work really well. So for example, there's the randomized response technique and there's several different ways of doing it. But in essence, what the researcher does is they promise the respondents that their responses will be anonymous for this one question. That is, even the researcher can't find out what they have responded. And what we can figure out, though, from the responses is who's not who said yes, but what proportion of the sample said yes to a sensitive item. So it is true, what we promise, we keep. But yes, we can figure out the proportion. So in this technique, there's a sensitive question, and it's written in yes or no format. And for example, agreeing with, let's say, a heterosexual statement, or like you said, agreeing with the statement, I have had an abortion, or a racist statement, whatever you name it. And you ask the respondent to roll a die, and you tell them this. You say, for this question, I want you to answer yes or no, but I want you to consider the number on your dice throw. So if a one shows on the dice, tell me no. If a six shows, tell me yes. But if any other number, like two, three, four, or five shows, then tell me your opinion about this question. So it's either a yes or a no. The way this works is, because a certain proportion of respondents are expected to respond yes right. and no forcibly. Yes. And because we know exactly what those proportions are, one-sixth for a yes, one-sixth for a no. Yes. And then we can calculate the proportion of all observed yeses that come from saying yes to the sensitive item. Yes. So it's really cool. And 
as promised, we really can't figure out who said yes, but you know, the proportion, we can figure that out. There's another technique. So these are all really creative and fun stuff. And this is the reason why I love experiments, survey experiments, especially. So there's another one called the list experiment. And this is also brilliant. This one's pioneered by Paul Snyderman in political science at Stanford. And with that technique, you have two experimental groups. You give the control group three statements, and the experimental group gets those same three statements plus a sensitive item. Okay. And then you ask the respondents, tell me how many of the statements you agree with. Don't tell me which ones. Just tell me how many. Okay. And the difference between the two experimental groups is, of course, the sensitive item. That's the only difference. So... The difference in the grand mean of the two groups can be attributed to the agreement with the sensitive item. I see. So all that sounds very clever. So in your own research, what are some examples? Right. So I work on explaining attitudes toward executive compensation. Okay. And I also use large-scale population-based survey experiments. And I do this primarily to examine the factors which have effects on people's attitudes towards executive pay. So I'm looking for a causal effect. And I want to isolate that causal effect, and experiments are the best way to do that. So I, I tend to look at, for example, the inputs of an executive, like the perceived performance, and keep increasing that performance. Let's say I ask, for example, John Hall is the CEO of a large multinational company. You know, here's how the company performed this year. What do you think he should get paid? And then how much should he get paid this year before taxes or something? And then I keep increasing that or decreasing that to see if this is linear or whether, you know, there is a sort of tapering off where people are thinking, okay, well, we have reached $5 million. Maybe he doesn't need to get the same increment pay raise anymore. So I'm looking at things like this where the idea of a social maximum, for example, if it's there or not. So it doesn't matter if the company profited 5 million or 5 billion. That's one hypothesis that I was testing, for example. And other factors that I look at are, you know, the environment in which the executive is functioning is very important, it turns out. For example, people are very worried about layoffs and not nearly as worried about bad performance as they are about layoffs. So if you have, you know, a thousand layoffs in a company, then the fair pay goes down. The acceptability of, let's say, five million US dollar pay goes down, which is less than median CEO pay now in really? Standard and Poor's five hundred companies. Yes, it's it's big. So, yeah, I can manipulate performance of a fictitious CEO in a vignette like this and see the you know causal effects of that particular factor. I also look at values as well, which is very interesting. The effects of core values on attitudes like economic individualism, which is the belief that rewards should be distributed based on contribution, that hard work is a value in itself, and so forth. So that explains a big portion of this. Uh, actually, there's a lot of polarization in the views, and that explains a lot of it, too. Right. I would think you would get different attitudes about this in a welfare state than mm -hmm. in a very capitalist country. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's about isolating the different effects with these experiments. And, of course, it would be really hard to ask a, you know, a person on the street... So what do you think? Is there a social maximum? You know, that you have to somehow break it down and make it more manageable for every person. So it seems like there's a lot of potential for things to go wrong. And you have commented on some of the ways of dealing with that. But social scientists are aware of those 
things that can go wrong and the effects that question order or the wording of a question can have. And they are interested in, in those effects themselves. But I mentioned before, as a media consumer, mm-hmm. none of that is ever reported. Even I mentioned I was surprised that the Brexit polls were saying anything can happen tomorrow. Right. So what are some ways that the media can responsibly report on polling? And as a media consumer, what should I look for when I form reactions to public opinion polls? Okay, that's important. So there are a lot of things to watch out for, as we already covered some of them. But I think the major distinguishing difference between good and bad surveys and polls is who picks the respondents for the survey. Right. So polls on websites are, you know, only completed by those who are visiting those sites and are interested in the issue enough to cast the vote, like you said before, right? Another is what exactly is being asked. So that goes back to the question wording. That makes a big difference. Some people will deliberately use leading questions, and that's not bad practice. That's ugly practice. So, <laughs> you know, we can, you know, we don't want to fall prey to that. And then the other problem is with response choices. So a question might ask, which of these policies would you choose among these two possibilities? And then in reporting this, the reporter should be very precise with the explanation of, all of these two choices, X percent of respondents selected policy A. It's not the case that X percent of respondents favor policy A, because that's not the same thing. Right. So precision is very important. In 1989, Humphrey Taylor, who was the chairperson of Harris Poll, published an article to warn polling companies against bad clients who want the polling company to conduct a survey, and then they're going to go and misrepresent the data. So mm-hmm. one of the points of the contract that he suggested is, will you agree that the results will be either published in whole or not at all? You cannot publish partial data. So you need to show the whole story. That's really important. And about the response choices, this is funny. I was once asked to do a survey, and the survey had a question about what religion the respondent is. So the answer choices did not include things like atheist, agnostic, and many other possibilities. I wrote back saying, you know, to the person who's running the survey that they don't have an exhaustive list right? or provide an other box either. But I got the response, well, then choose the religion that comes closest to your views. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yes, that's what happened. So, you know, that's just terrible practice, I'm going to say. And so anyway, ask the questions, who did the survey, for what purpose, what was asked exactly, and what response choices were given. How many responses were interviewed? That's going to be important also. And how were those people selected? Probably the most important. That will cover a lot of ground. Yeah, at least that will will give you some idea of what was measured, if anything at all. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for being on my show. I think that's all the time we have today. Okay. Thank you so much, Tim, for having me here. My guest again is Dr. Esra Barakho, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at Lingnan University. To find out more about her work, visit www.esrabarak.com. The website for Thoughts and Feels is drtimweatherspoon.com podcast. There you can find links to people and articles discussed in the episode. You can subscribe to Thoughts and Feels on iTunes or Stitcher. And as always, thanks for listening.